Human beings do not live forever, Reuven. We live less than the time it takes to blink an eye if we measure our lives against eternity. So it may be asked, what value is there to human life? There's so much pain in the world, what does it mean to have to suffer so much if our lives are nothing more than the blink of an eye? He paused again, his eyes misty now, then went on. I learned a long time ago, Reuven, that a blink of an eye in itself is nothing, but the eye that blinks, that is something. A span of life is nothing, but the man who lives that span, he is something. He can fill that tiny span with meaning, so its quality is immeasurable, though its quantity may be insignificant. Do you understand what I am saying? A man must fill his life with meaning. Meaning is not automatically given to life. It is hard work to fill one's life with meaning. That I do not think you understand yet. A life filled with meaning is worthy of rest. I want to be worthy of rest when I am no longer here. Do you understand what I am saying? Chaim Potok, The Chosen. 1967. Children gather around, come sit by the cannon fire, come and join the conversation. Children gather around, if written works are your desire, come and sit beside the flame. about Chaim Potok again. <laughs> yes. Okay, so just for an explanation for you guys, um, and probably this is going to end up in Patreon, but we were very tipsy. I was drunk the last time we talked about Chaim Potok because we were celebrating. Um, however, the, it ended up just being a, a long, like, two-hour rant on the Holocaust rather than focusing on the author so that may end up being a Patreon episode or uh, bonus content, just something like that, because it didn't focus as much as we wanted on the author, and it focused way too much on something that is very triggering for a lot of people. That's why we're re-recording this. So um, you'll you'll get it, but it it won't be uh, it won't be a normal episode. We're also re-recording it because the audio quality was absolutely horrendous. That's true. That If you listened to the Anna Akhmatova episodes, you know that the audio in those was pretty bad. Chaim Potok was like that, but actually it, it ended up being even a little bit worse. So, we, so we're just redoing. We're just redoing it. We didn't have time to redo Anna Akhmatova. Um, and it, it was okay enough that we didn't really have to, but Chaim Potok was a mess. So we're just... Redoing it, we've moved rooms so that uh, we have carpet now, and it's not as echoey. We were recording, like, basically inside a kitchen, which isn't the smartest idea. Yeah, no, we're we're learning as we go. So, you guys go ahead and start talking, because I don't, again, actually know that much about Heimpoltok. Uh, but you guys do, you've done the research. Caitlin, how did you come across this author? You introduced me to Haim Potok much later than I think I should have been introduced to him. I 
um, learned about Heimpotok when I was in the high school age, although I wasn't actually in high school, I was homeschooled. And because I was homeschooled, I took a lot of literature classes, like five or six in my high school career. And one of the classes I took, um, the teacher introduced us to The Chosen by Han Potok, and I devoured it in about two or three hours, um, and maybe less, I read pretty fast, and just fell in love with him because he was, one, his writing is just very good. He's very engaging, and he's very, has his own voice about him. Um, but I also was really drawn to him because my family is Jewish on my mom's side, but I have not really had a lot of experience with that side of my culture. I've not had a bat mitzvah. I've only been to a synagogue a few times, and it wasn't my synagogue. It was the synagogue of people I know. But I was really fascinated by the viewpoint of Haim Potok and what he was saying, and also how the way he thought related to the way I thought, because I didn't understand until I read him that that culture was where I got my perspective from. Because the quote that you just read actually is very similar to the way I see the world in terms of things not really having meaning unless we as people give them meaning. And I didn't realize that that was a Jewish culture thing until I read him. And so I fell in love with him. Then I introduced you to him. Yes. And then you read so much more of him <laughs> than I had a chance to. <laughs> so basically... We're figuring out which authors to uh, record in what order as we continue this podcast, right? And it was, like, very apparent in the first five episodes we wanted to cover a Black woman. We wanted to cover a Jewish-American author. We wanted to cover an Indigenous poet. She's next week. She is next week. We're very excited. Well, well the week after. The week after the next, because yes. we're splitting these up into two parts now. And. I wanted to get a jump start so that I would have, like, a lot of time to look into these authors. And Kaylin was like, hi, I'm Potok. And I'm like, I've never heard this name before. I really don't know because the bookshelf I was uh, raised with was very female-oriented. And the fact that, like, it had very strong female protagonists in, like, almost every single series that I ever read for pleasure it was all, like, I could envision myself on these quests, on this fantastical journey in many lifetimes, right? And I didn't really get a whole lot of books from the male perspective that I enjoyed, because I only read that in school. And I was, like, started reading The Chosen, and I was like, Caitlin said he was good, so I'm gonna really, like, actually focus on, on this author. And it started out with a baseball game, and I've been to baseball games before, and they are the most arduous things that I've ever been to. I'm, I'm very rude. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I, I love, I love <laughs> baseball. So baseball is my favorite sport. So I like playing it. Don't say playing watching. It. I love both. I love both. But and, yeah, and I won't. I won't. People that do, and yeah, I, I won't harp on it. I understand people not liking it. It's about as slow as golf. And I used to watch them. I was uh, very little, and in, in um, Texas with my dad, we would watch golf. Fun. But I never got into baseball, right? I was an interesting child. And <laughs> I was loving this baseball game. I was totally engaged. And I was like, who is this guy that is writing like this long chapter, play by play, of these two teams that were playing against each other, start of the homosexual metaphors right <laughs> at the bat. <laughs> that's really interesting, actually, because I've been listening to, this is like total segue, but 
I've been listening recently to Potterless, and he harps and harps and harps on about how much he hates the Quidditch chapters. And I didn't before I started listening to him, but now that I've heard his descriptions for Quidditch, I was like, oh my god, Quidditch sucks. <laughs> like, I love the idea of Quidditch, and I love playing Quidditch, but now reading about Quidditch makes me want to die. <laughs> because, because the rules don't make sense. It's so slow. The only person that matters is the seeker, unless it's professional Quidditch. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. Quidditch is stupid. And it's very obvious that Rowling had no idea what a sport was whenever she wrote Quidditch. She should have read Time Potok because what he does is like he... Yeah, I don't like reading sports. I don't like reading sports, but I can imagine that... In one chapter, he manages to convey sports and also talk about society. And just integrate it all in a giant metaphor, and you're just with the characters. You're feeling what the characters are feeling. You're like, yeah, this matters, even though I love that. I love that. Um, But like in that moment, I was like worked up. And then like three chapters later, you're talking about Zionism, like in an intellectual (laughs) with the same characters that were hating on each other in the first chapter. And he he's just a remarkable person. He does the most wonderful character introductions because like one of his first sentences is like the moment I saw this character I hated him. And it was like it was a very Hamilton way of of starting a story. We're going back to Lin Manuel Miranda and the Hamilton for a moment because it's like starting the story with like that's how I tell stories too. Yeah, yeah. And it makes the reader that's such an intelligent way to start a story because then you're invested in a way to be like, okay, why? What happened? And then to like see how that developed one way or another, either they stay enemies or they become friends or they were friends and they become enemies. It's just the human interaction aspect becomes the center, which is in all of Potok's writings is human interaction above all else. And um, I haven't seen the movie for The Chosen. I have no idea how they would do the movie for The Chosen because it's just... It takes time and and there are just very long, serious conversations and debates that he goes through and introduces the reader to. But um, he was, it was so phenomenal for me. Like, I read that because I was giving it my all for the podcast. I had already checked out, like, all the other books by him just in case I really enjoyed his writing. And, like, I devoured, like, every single book that my library had. Um, it wasn't all the books that he'd written, unfortunately, but it was a good number. And I was just able to see like the genius come off the page in terms of this is a perspective that I've never been introduced to. And I was very, very sad that I had never been introduced to his perspective of seeing the world because Potok has a very non-white way of, non-white in terms of like mainstream America way of, of dealing with conflict that I think is very valuable to our society where we are at this moment. I also, one of the things that I really like about that first chapter is because it is ostensibly about baseball, but it's also about these other things. He establishes in the first chapter the difference between very strict Orthodox Judaism and Hasidic Judaism, because a lot of people who are not within the Jewish culture kind of, I think, mistake one for the other a lot of the time, because they do have a very similar look of the earlocks and the very conservative clothes and the kind of almost monochrome monochrome way of dressing. But they're also incredibly distinct, which Chaim Potok was well aware of because his he was raised in an Orthodox home. And so he would have, in, in New York City, so he would have 
been surrounded by these different Jewish groups. And that's not something that's really ever publicized outside of Judaism is how these two groups that aesthetically may look very similar are actually very, very different. And he also, despite, I mean, maybe not despite of, he also is very compassionate about understanding why these groups are different and understanding that the traditional things that he maybe doesn't agree with come from a place of belief and understanding that is something to be considered, even though he doesn't agree with it. He does that phenomenally in, in, in The Chosen in particular with the um, advice from the two father figures, um, because these two father figures kind of mutually agree that the two main characters are going to be in each other's lives and they're going to interact and they're going to grow together. And they also have very fundamental moral differences in how they raise their families. But they, there are these beautiful scenes of interactions with like the fathers or with like the other father and the other son where it's just presented as a relationship and it's presented as like, we're all trying our best and we all want to succeed and we want our children to succeed. And your way might not be the way for your child, but you love your child and I can help your child become as great as you want them to be like as a person or like, it's just a very communal aspect and the decisions are very tough decisions. Like he does not, like parse words with like, well, they could have done this or they could have done that. It's like, no, this is how they, they chose. They chose this path. They went with this path. They stuck to their instincts. And it's up to the reader to, to kind of go through the discomfort of like, I don't know how I would react in that situation. Oh, I don't like how, how that character handled it. But you don't ever judge the character because he gives reasons and you can see why. Each character makes their decisions, which you don't always get in a like third person limited <laughs> story. Uh, and it was just so well done. Um, kind of going back to the beginning of where this very thoughtful, compassionate perspective came from. Uh, Chaim Potok was originally born Herman Harold Potok in New York City. Chaim is his Hebrew name. A lot of especially Orthodox Jews will give their child a Hebrew name in addition to the name on their birth certificate. It's very similar to the way that Eastern East Asian cultures, their uh, Asian American parents will give their children their, say, English name, but they will also have a Chinese name or a Thai name or a Vietnamese name that they their families use to refer to them. Just because it's easier for an English-speaking country to record a name that's meant to be spelled with Latin lettering. He was raised in an Orthodox home, which is pulled towards conservatism, which sounds like it would be pretty conservative, but at the time it was actually considered very a very liberal thing for him to move towards. Since then, Reform Judaism has gotten a lot more traction and is the quote-unquote liberal Judaism. But at the time, this would have been a big thing, especially since he was raised in a particularly strict Orthodox house. Uh, he graduated from Yeshiva University and the Jewish Theological Seminary of America and was ordained as a conservative rabbi um, and actually was a U.S. Army chaplain during the Korean War working as a rabbi. Yeah, I don't think um, we went over kind of what his life was. So, like, he was born in uh, 1929, um, which 
kind of... It's a rough year to be born, isn't it? It's yeah. a rough year to be born, and it also makes when the U.S. got involved in World War Two like, a pivotal year for Potok himself, because, like, that's puberty. And, yeah. and that experience and his community's reactions and how they got past and how they continued to live their lives kind of framed how he viewed the world and how he viewed conflict, like, which it would be for anybody who would, would have gone through such a, a, a traumatic event um, that would impact identities um, felt. Um, so he lived through that. He wrote about it afterwards. Almost all of his, uh, books deal with a, um, either the Jewish way of life in terms of Orthodox or Hasidic Jew Judaism. And it deals with either during the American involvement of the Holocaust or right after, I think for the most part, um, because that was just, not a whole lot was being written from that perspective. And he kind of had a way of telling the story and also like showing uh, his characters as characters, as people that made their own choices and, and disagreed with each other. And it, it kind of was important for the American um, people at large to not stereotype whole communities. You know, he was able to say like, oh, this block was this kind of Judaism, this block was this Judaism, this is how they lived their lives, these were just how we went about our days, you know, and he showed these this ritualistic way of living as just matter of fact, but in a very nostalgic way, and, and you don't really get a, a sense of, like, what his opinion was on how he was raised and those rituals, how they impacted him. But I think he saw value in the fact that they existed. Um, is that just in is that just in this book, or is it in, in in all of his works? It's in most of his works. Interesting. Um, because uh, I think Asher Lev's books, um, the the characters or the books that he wrote on the character of Asher Lev, like I think that's either Orthodox or Hasidic. Mm. I think it's Orthodox, Orthodox because my name is Asher Lev is. The closest at the time that he got to writing an autobiography. Um, and Asher Lev is very influenced by his struggles to uh, act creatively in a very Orthodox household. Yeah. Um, because there's a lot of rules if you're an Orthodox Jew. A lot of rules. Yes. And if you're not Jewish um, and you're reading Chaim Potok, just know that there are a lot of things that are significant that you will not understand. And you should be okay with that. For <laughs> a more pop culture reference, aren't the Jew the Jews in Fiddler on the Roof Orthodox? I believe so. Yes. Yeah. Um, they have all those like they have all those rules in that that song at the beginning. That the intro song is basically just them explaining all the rules they yeah. have and that kind of thing. Which it's such a cute song, but also it is that like rigidly traditional. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of to give you an idea of what kind of rules they had to follow. It's kind of like that. Yeah. Um, th that is a little bit earlier in the time. It would be. I it it's, Fiddler on the Roof is set in what would be considered Orthodox Jewish 
like an Orthodox Jewish community, but that was almost a little before the discussion of what the different Jewish it was communi- the what late, distinguished the different Jewish communities. Right, it was the late eighteen hundreds, wasn't it, or yeah. the early nineteen hundreds? It's yeah, it's before also, that. It, it's it's also set in Russia, which yes. is much more complicated because Jewish communities don't have the freedom to distinguish themselves as much in yeah. Russia because no matter what kind of philosophies you ascribe to in Russia, if you're Jewish, you're Jewish. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and as we talked about in Anna Agmatova's episode, that was the same time that uh, religion was illegal, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Well, no. No, it wouldn't no, be. No, it wasn't. It would be too, uh, too early. Too early. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, that's why... Being Jewish has been it, Yes, right. But, like, I, I'm almost thinking that may have been why at the very end of the movie they're all leaving, is because of that... That law that was passed. No. No. It, no. Uh, it, it was probably... I don't remember For the Lord on the Roof very well. Uh, I, I I've watched it, it too enough. many times. I, it's been a while. I do love it. I just haven't seen it in a while. I, I'm pretty sure it's because they're moving the Jews because as soon as a plot of land or an area became useful to the Russian yeah. government, they kicked the Jews out. And uh, We'll get back to you on that. <laughs> We'll watch it and get back to you on it. Another uh, book that Kotak wrote was is The Vita's Heart, and that is the only one with the female protagonist who kind of welcomes uh, her Jewishness um, while she goes through puberty. But it's a very interesting book because her parents are communists in America and Jewish. Um, so you can kind of tell, and uh, it might be in the 60s that it's, um, think, or 40s maybe? that uh, Davida's harp is set. Um, so it's, it's really interesting. Um, but it might be in the 60s, because it's with Stalin, but I don't know. Um, Stalin was started in the 20s, so it could have been. I don't remember when it takes place. You um, know history better than I do. Uh, but it's it's super interesting, because... Uh, Davida's harp is the 1930s. 1930s. Yeah, so um, in Davida's harp, Davida is uh, the main character's name female name for David, um, and both of her parents are, uh, communist activists in New York, and it's a very interesting, complex book, but, um, all of his books were like that, (laughs) in terms of, like, you think it's going someplace, and then he's, like, flips the table, and is like, oh, but when in, in this situation, how would these people react? And... He was, uh, The Chosen was his first published book ever, um, by a major U.S. publisher, and the American public ate it up because they had never seen or read or thought about the communities that he was writing about and the context that he was writing. Something that means a lot to me about The Chosen, and this is kind of just a me thing, my mom was actually born the year it came out, um, which is just a little tidbit that's interesting to me because he wrote it the year the year she was born or it was published the year she was born and it depicted a kind of jewish community that she would later enter into when she emigrated to the united states um in the 70s and late 70s early 80s somewhere around there um and it's just interesting to me that the neighborhoods that she entered later they had be they had changed 
because a lot of things changed in the world between 1967 and 1979 to 1981. But the way she describes growing up in very similar areas to the neighborhoods that he's describing in The Chosen are very similar. And it's kind of a testament to the way that Jewish traditionalism, which he describes, kind of keeps going, even as it changes, even as people argue and change their minds and make new arguments. There's always a Jewishness about Jewish people, but it allows for change in a way, at least some specific communities and groups, it allows for change in a way that's very fluid and natural because it's always being, like everything is always being questioned. And so you can read this book that it is set before 1967, but is written in 1967. And you can look at the way that Jewish people lived in the late 70s, early 80s, when my mom was living in this very similar space, and still see the connections, even though the actual context has changed a lot. And that's one of the things that I think is really helpful about Chaim Potok, is that when you read him, he's talking about Jewish life and Jewish people, independent of stereotypes and things. And it's a very good way of understanding learning how to understand Jewish community because he's just talking about the people like the this people and the culture that he knows. Yeah, we're struggling kind of to to specifically clarify what we're, what we're talking about because it's just such a potop way of just showing complexity that it's it's very difficult to say like this is exactly what he's doing because you'll just go through an experience reading his books. And you'll come out completely changed in, in your mindset from when you started. I wish I had read him in high school for sure. Because the way that I was taught about um, Jewishness was from just a religious standpoint instead of a cultural standpoint. And learning from just like one facet of what a community, what a multifaceted community and, and discussions and debates happening within the larger community and smaller communities, like you just miss so much about why claiming and why being able to own Jewishness is so important because like the way I was taught about it in public school, it was just, oh, they went to a synagogue and that was like the main difference. They didn't really go into rituals. They didn't go into the significance of rituals or the significance of knowing where you came from or knowing your generation or knowing your history through religion as like an avenue and, and all the theology that real people had done for generations, for centuries. Being able to claim part of that living history is so important. Um, and I didn't really grasp how wonderful it is as a community and as a culture until I read Potok because he was just able to show through words. Like, like it really is just, you're watching a conversation happen in front of your eyes. Like, it, it's the weirdest. It's why I love literature so much because you just get lost in the words and you're not reading, you're viewing a life happen. <laughs> I, I think that's one of the reasons that I actually really appreciate the fact that he wrote mostly young adult work. Because this book, The Chosen, is intended to be, like, he wrote it for teenagers. He wrote it to be read in high school. And um, I wish I could say it was just the literary canon that dismisses young adult fiction, but it's not. It's basically everyone yeah. above the age of, like, every, like, major 
institution that judges books. But one of the things about it is this approaching teenagers with this book is basically telling them that there is no one right way. You have to learn from the influences around you. And by doing so, you will figure out yourself. And that's okay. Which I think is a really important lesson for young people to learn is that there's going to be a lot of influences and you should look for the influences that can teach you what you need to know to live your life. And that's something that isn't really fostered in our culture. It's more like, you should know what you want to do as a job when you're eight years old, and then you should work towards that, and it should preferably be something that makes you a lot of money. And you really shouldn't think about what you want to do or your life or who you are as a person because you should basically just do what society tells you you should. And that's really not something that Chaim Potok was saying. He was saying it's okay to not know what you want to do. It's okay to look for different sources. It's okay to find out who you are from the people you need to approach to find out who you are. And that isn't necessarily going to be your family. And it isn't even necessarily going to be your community, but there are probably people in your community who think differently than you do that you could approach about it. I definitely think that helped me when I was in high school, is reading Heim Hotok. Uh, also, it confronts the problem that I have with a lot of the literature that's assigned to high schoolers, is that I think it can be easily related to if you're a high schooler and there's less of this issue of why am I reading this? It's just something written by like an old Greek dude or English dude from 700 years ago who I can't understand because you're not really showing me how it's relevant to my life. Like those things can be taught in a way where teenagers will get something out of them, but something like Chaim Potok is immediately relevant to a teenager because they're he's writing about teenagers and he's writing about these people who are trying to figure out their lives and g is nodding at me <laughs> yeah well and that's why in in my school at least we were encouraged um like i hated that we had to read basically the literary canon in high school because it just it wasn't relatable you know okay romeo and juliet is taught freshman year of high school in my school and at 14 years old, the very first thing learning you're learning is Romeo and Juliet is not relatable. I know that Juliet was supposed to be 13 years old, but she was a developed 13 year old. If mm -hmm. that's how, you know, if, if that's how it's it was taught sincerely and it's not meant. Right. To be it, well, it's it wasn't in my it wasn't in my school taught sincerely. Okay. It, it was. Ta yeah, it was made fun of. We definitely made oh, fun of it. We absolutely made yeah. fun of it. But it was also well, we weren't talking like, about Shakespeare in context. The teacher was definitely we taught we learned about Shakespeare in context. Definitely did. Okay. Um, which I appreciated a lot. However, we shouldn't have learned Romeo and Juliet until we were 17 or 18 years old mm -hmm. because you can't relate to it at 14. You are just entering puberty. You are just learning what the opposite sex or same sex or both is, you know, to you. You, you are just realizing that this ridiculous, it, and a lot of 14 year olds do take it seriously, which is why it was such so important uh, that our teacher taught it, taught us not to take it seriously. Um, but if we had learned it at 17 or 18, then it would have been so much easier for us to understand that it wasn't to be taken seriously. It was a tragedy, but it was a comedic tragedy because it was stupid, mm -hmm. you know? And 
we that's why in my school we were encouraged to read uh young adult literature young you know uh teenage literature on our own time um but that didn't happen with a lot of people because they read so much crap that they didn't want to read anything else and so we were very encouraged to read on our own but because we were reading stuff that we didn't want to read in class and getting grades on it it discouraged a lot of people from reading for enjoyment. Um, and so it discouraged a lot of young people from finding these things that they related to and learning from them. So that that's something that I've always been very upset about mm -hmm. because we were learning these things that honestly, I can go back after completing college and being an adult and understand why I should have related to it. But at 14, 15, 16, I wasn't going to relate to it. There's no way. I was going to relate to it. And I was pretty advanced. I was in the advanced English classes, you know, but I shouldn't have been relating to that. And nobody was, mm -hmm. nobody was because it just, it wasn't in a right context for us. We were too young. Um, and that's not like a dismissive thing. It was just that it was the completely wrong context. And it sucks that young adult fiction isn't taken seriously because it should be for teenagers. It's very important. You know, it, it shaped me. And another thing that I think is important about Haim Kotak and also relating to the idea of shaping people in, and taking young adult literature seriously as a genre is that we never become a static person. It's not like you develop yourself as a teenager and then suddenly you're that person for the rest of your life. Haim Kotak, yeah. <laughs> kind of one... The people who always have the most conflict within themselves in Haim Kotak's works are the people who have chosen to follow a path and stick to that path. And they might grow, but they're growing within a structure that will shape them in a certain way. They're growing a structure that a lot of the time they've chosen for themselves or right. built around themselves. Right. Like, but, and this is something that I really appreciate about Jewish culture there's no right or wrong answer to anything in Jewish culture. It's all, there's always an argument. Um, ever since I was a kid, I didn't realize this was something that people's, other people's parents didn't do with them. Ever since I was a kid, whenever I said something very matter-of-factly, my mom would ask me a question in the opposite, in the op from the opposing perspective. And she never did it because she was, was the opposing perspective. A lot of the time she agreed with me. But asking the question and making me answer it articulated why I felt that way and why it was rational or logical or important to think that way, which is um, something that I think that every culture could learn from, is the idea that if you have an opinion, you should know why you have the opinion, you should know how to state it, and you should understand the opposing opinion. And that's something that is integral to Jewish history, in Jewish culture, because there is centuries upon centuries, probably even millennia at this point, of argument and saying, just rabbis arguing for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years about the various ways you could approach a problem. I, I can tell you why it doesn't happen in other cultures. Because children should be seen and not heard. And because children should be moldable, mm -hmm. which means that they can't have their own opinions. That's how I grew up. I didn't, I wasn't allowed to have my own opinion. And I'm still not allowed to have my own opinion. I'm 22 years old, and if I go home and I express my opinion, I get yelled at for it. I think, um... An important thing that uh, you mentioned, Kate, was uh, it's like a lot of times people who aren't Jewish kind of oversimplify the Jewish culture as just, oh, they question everything. 
what they do is they question everything for a purpose. Like, there's an intent behind the questions right. that are asked. It's not just, oh, why are you doing that? Or why are you doing this? It's like, explain yourself to me about why you see it this way. And show your reasoning. Which is the integral kernel of literary criticism. Like, Caitlin is so much more advanced in than I am about literary criticism because she was raised in that household with that tradition. It's muscle memory to a certain extent with, like, activating your brain and going back to the text and saying, oh, this is why I view it this way because this person said you could interpret it this way. And this person disagreed with them, yes, but also they said this point that, like, refutes and, like, there are just chapters and chapters in The Chosen and in other books of just these, like, teenagers going back and forth over text that is, like, important to them, but also happened thousands of years ago. And the fathers are watching and they're pointing things out and it's, like, a conversation and there's, like, a mutual level of, like, respect and understanding intellectually between the younger generation and the older generation, which, gee... I was raised in a very similar way than you, and that's not, I'm still trying to get to a point where I have that level of mutual intellectual respect yeah, with me my too. parents. I'm, well, I ha- I'm not even <laughs> trying anymore at this point. I love them so much, but it, when, 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 you, when you have an argument about whether or not global warming exists, it's, it's time to like step back and decide whether you actually want to have these arguments or not, honestly. And I had to step back and decide I really don't want to deal with it anymore. So it's funny to me because it is something that's actually also has a precedent in Western history because Socrates used the same method. That's the Socratic method. They use it in modern education, but it's never really the, the questioning method. The questioning yeah. method. But it's never. It's a it's a teaching tool. It's not something that's supposed to be applied to regular life, which is insane to me because it has been applied to regular life since I was a, before I could walk. I probably. was I was taught by my schools by my teachers to apply it to regular life. However, when I applied it to regular life at home, I got in trouble. Yeah. So I stopped doing it and only did it at school. And it helps me at school. I learned so quickly and so well at school because I asked questions about everything. And I was one of the favorite students for from kindergarten all the way through college because I asked questions about everything. I was always asking questions. I was always curious. I was always fostering discussion, always. But at home, if I asked questions that seemed nonsensical, I got in trouble. And so it was really frustrating because I was trying to learn, but asking why was just met with because I said so. And that's not a good, that's not a good reason for somebody who wants to learn, mm-hmm. you know, and I wanted dearly to learn and it's kind of put me off learning and I'm having to relearn how to learn because of how I grew up. And it's so frustrating because I love my parents. I do, but they... <laughs> Just answering a question with, because you don't think, a lot of adults don't think children will understand the answers. And because I said so should be a good enough answer. It's not. Because children are desperate to learn and they want to know why. And giving them an answer that makes sense builds trust. It, it helps them learn. And it just, it, 
building trust is the hugest thing with it, but it fosters this ability to learn within children that they don't have if they just hear because I said so all the time, you know? Also, um, and this is something that happens with in, in The Chosen with uh, Reuven and his father. If you create a dialogue between children and their, if parents and their, if parents create a dialogue with their children where their children can ask questions, then your kids will ask you so many more questions about the really important things in life than yeah. they will if they don't. Because, like, I tell my mom, or I ask questions, my mom for advice on basically everything, including really personal stuff that I'm not going to name on this, on the air, but, like, I know how to do that because I know that that's a connection that I have with her, and so... Which is so bizarre to me. I live with Caitlin, and it's bizarre to me to watch that because I don't have that kind of relationship with my mother, and it's just... It makes me jealous, but it's also just so strange to watch that because it's just not something that I experienced. And one of the reasons that I think we did came up with this podcast and we wanted to do that is because learning, like watching other people's experiences or reading their experiences like we do with we're, we're doing with Hanfotop right now helps us understand what we want out of the world. It, it's kind of almost the... Um, like, the, the Western canon is almost like the literary version of inbreeding. If you don't, if you keep reading the same things in the same pool, genetic pool over and over and over again, then you only have that to access and it becomes stagnant and unable to grow. But when you bring in other authors like Potok, like Anna Akhmadova, like Phyllis Wheatley, then you're adding to this literary gene pool and you're able to follow these paths that you otherwise wouldn't be able to. In simpler terms, reading just the Western canon makes you stupid. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's also important to mention <laughs> Potok's The Chosen is like the epitome example for me of the value of young adult literature because it's not just for teenagers. It's written for teenagers, absolutely. You can read it as a 30-something-year-old and come away knowing either something new about yourself or seeing the world in a expanded uh, viewpoint than you went going into the book. And um, I think it it's so helpful because, like, he represents, um, in his characters, he represents that there are interactions between the sons and the fathers that are just really interesting to me because the fathers get really excited when the sons point out that they were incorrect, which is something that never happened in my Ooh. household. Ooh. They get excited and they're like, yeah. yes, I was incorrect. Tell me why. That would have, that would have, that would have been so great in my house to have as just four kids who loved learning so much, mm -hmm. still love learning so much. It would have been great in my household, and it never happened. It's just, it's, I, I really, I, he came, the author, Pozak, came into my life at a very pivotal moment, and I'm very happy that um, I was able to fully process kind of, like, my first dive into his world. I'm definitely going to have to reread his literature, and I know I'm going to get something new out of it each time, which just brings me so much joy knowing that, like, each additional read I can like pay attention to something new that I never learned before I read something in a different light 
while it's the same words on the page, it just excites me. But like knowing that I was able to to benefit from his writings um, when he only died like in 2002, but I never heard of him. I didn't hear about him being worn that much either. But I just, I hope that like the next generations kind of get him earlier in their lives because it's just, it it's why I, I wanted to be a writer. <laughs> like how he tells a story is just so immensely relatable to how I, I want people to understand. Because like he presents people in a way that it's like, oh, it's okay that I'm not the main protagonist, you know? Like, and and the way that the canon, even within the young adult literature, like, because there's a canon for young adult literature. Yeah. Um, it need like, our, our bookshelves need to be diverse so that we grow up knowing that we're not the only center that exists. Yeah. yeah. So that's the end of part one of Chaim Potok for... Making and recording our theme song, we would like to thank Alan Hardison for drawing and creating, sending, whatever, our banner art. We would like to thank Brittany Barrel. Uh, if you want to reach us or find out more about us, you can find us at cannonfirepodcast.com. You can email us at uh, cannonfirepodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow follow us on our social media uh, on Facebook and Instagram, it is at Cannon Fire Podcast, and on Twitter, it is at Cannon Fire Pod. Um, is there anything else that I'm forgetting? No. Oh yes. Uh, as you continue learning about these wonderful, wonderful um, unspoken uh, geniuses <laughs> that are getting a spotlight, please remember that Western grammar is a white colonial construct, and. Uh, pronunciation actually matters in terms of you need to pronounce it pronounce words the way that the original language and the people who use that word pronounce it don't watch it yeah not chime chime not, not chayum it's chayum shanika shanika shanuka i'm done i'm oh sorry my God. we'll see you guys next time bye, bye.